Hello and welcome on to another episode of the ISO Ball Podcast with your host, Derek Terrio, your place to learn about the NBA on and off the court. Back here with another This Week in Basketball, focusing on the week of December 9th to December 15th. Bit of a quick hitter here, some news to touch on, uh, my one big game of the week and then uh, what I learned this week. And that will wrap it up. Uh, I'm actually heading on vacation for the next few weeks, so there unfortunately will be no podcast for the next couple of Sundays. I'll do my best to keep up with the games, but unfortunately there will be no promises on that end, and I will most likely miss the Christmas Day slate, which will be the first time in some time that I've missed that. But nonetheless, excited for the vacation. I'll be playing some pickup myself and stuff like that, so it should be fun. But yeah, no podcast after this one for the next couple of weeks, but we'll resume uh, three weeks from now and have uh, a ton of good stuff for you guys. So just kicking it off with the news here. Uh, news I failed to mention in the last podcast is uh, Portland shooting guard, small forward, however you want to classify him. Rodney Hood unfortunately tore his Achilles. He's going to be out for the season. Uh, very sad news there for Rodney Hood. And in addition to that, Portland, Portland has applied for a disabled player exception of uh, $2.85 million. So essentially what that is is that when a uh, w- – without telling you the actual you know specifics and intricacies of the disabled player exception and how you can apply for it, uh, essentially, when a player's go when a player goes down like this, you basically are allowed to apply for what's called a disabled player exception. Um, and if you know anything about the salary cap, this is another one of those, you know, exceptions like your your mid level exception, the um, uh, biannual exception. It falls under that same category. Uh, but this is an exception that you can use to basically expand a little bit of your cap uh, without actually touching the luxury tax, which is great. So they can basically Portland can trade for a player. Uh, with up to 2.85 million uh, in salary without any further cap implications and just fit them uh, into that exception there. So that would be someone on the veterans minimum or a buyout market guy most likely uh, would be able to fit into that exception or if they traded for somebody they could also uh, fit that in as well. Another example of this was DeMarcus Cousins, uh, who tore his ACL for the Lakers before the season started, and they were granted a disabled player exception as well. But essentially, in short, the disabled player exception, uh, basically an exception that allows you to exceed the cap to either sign a free agent or trade for a player or claim someone off waivers as long as they fit under uh, the number or exactly at the number that the disabled player exception uh, granted uh, is required. <clears throat> Another injury here. P.J. Washington uh, fractured his finger. He's going to be out through Christmas. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened here, but uh, uh, the Hornets are going to get a loss there from P.J. Washington, who's been playing you know, quite well as a rookie. Uh, drafted there at the end of the lottery. I think he was 14th and has been playing quite well uh, uh, on his um, in his first year for their uh, the Charlotte Hornets, so uh, so a lo- so a loss for them. Uh, they'll they'll for sure miss him and his play. Uh, Eric Bledsoe is going to be out two weeks with a uh, fibula avulsion fracture. So basically, an, an avulsion fracture. Uh, I actually thought personally I had one and. Turns out I did not, but an avulsion fracture essentially is what happens is when the tendon pulls away from the bone and actually takes a piece of the bone with it, uh, it's considered an, an, an avulsion f- fracture, and that actually occurred in our Bledsoe's tibia, so he's going to be out a couple weeks, possibly a little bit longer, uh, tough, uh, tough break there for him as they just got uh, Chris Middleton back, and now we got uh, Eric Bledsoe obviously missing time there as well. 
Luka Doncic uh, suffered a pretty bad ankle sprain uh, in recent days here. He was grabbing at his high ankle uh, when he went down. Uh, you can you can see the video on Twitter. It's you know it's a pretty bad ankle sprain. It looked to me like a bad one anyway. But when he was in the stanchion, you know, kind of behind the net, he was grabbing at the high ankle, which you know was very concerning. High ankle sprains definitely one that tends to linger, take a lot longer to heal. But apparently he was doing some work on an underwater treadmill uh, with the Mavericks. So. Um, Kind of just tells you that it's maybe not as bad as originally thought. Uh, X-rays were negative, so no broken bones or anything. And uh, Woj actually reported that it's a, a mild ankle sprain. So he's probably going to be out a few weeks, but uh, avoided probably the grade three or two or three version of the ankle sprain that uh, guys like you know Lonzo Ball and uh, De'Aaron Fox most recently suffered uh, that kept them out. You know maybe a month and a half or something like that. So. Most likely will be a couple weeks here for Doncic, uh, but uh, and nonetheless a loss here for the Mavericks. Uh, they've been playing you know super well and and mostly because of Doncic. So we'll see how good this team you know really is. They have been touted you know for their bench when Doncic hasn't been on the floor. Some of their uh, second units have been putting up uh, good uh, net rating numbers and stuff like that. So we're gonna see how uh, how things step up and it's uh, it's Jalen Brunson time uh, to start running this first unit and maybe we'll see a little more JJ Barea, possibly some Seth Curry at point guard as well. Uh, but uh, we'll see if the Mavericks can survive uh, this stretch here with Doncic. I mean, they've got uh, a couple, you know, tough games coming up on their schedule. They got the Bucks tomorrow night. They got uh, the Celtics, the Sixers, the Raptors, all uh, in the next four days here. And you know that's that's gonna that's gonna be a tough one. And I mean they got the Spurs, they got the Warriors as well. So those are a bit on the uh, the lighter side. But then after that they've got uh, they got the Lakers and then the Thunder and then the Nets. So they've got a few you know tough games mainly those first four that I mentioned here. But uh, we're gonna see uh, we're gonna see what the Mavericks are made of over these next uh, you know four to six games uh, as Doncic recovers from this ankle sprain. Last piece of news here, uh, the NBA is going to be launching a G League team in Mexico starting 2021, as uh, Adam Silver said on a recent press conference. Uh, this is awesome. This is awesome for the league. They continue to expand. They continue to do great things. Um, they had a couple games recently in Mexico, uh, one of them being the Mavs versus the Pistons, which uh, did very well. And I think um, it was Spurs and Suns uh, was the other one that also was, uh, was a fantastic game over there in Mexico. So um, they, they continue to expand uh, the league, which is great. I mean, I think uh, a G League uh, team in Mexico is kind of a, a little test case for possibly what could be a full-time uh, team in Mexico in the near future. I mean, the logistics really aren't that different. I mean, teams travel to Canada. I mean, traveling to Mexico, not necessarily going to be too much different in terms of proximity and stuff like that. So We'll see how it works, but uh, excited to see what this G League team in Mexico is going to be like starting 2021. Obviously, that's a little bit of ways from now, but uh, great to see that the league has continued to expand, and uh, uh, that's awesome for the NBA and international viewers. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how that works. I don't know how the logistics would work of that, like um, adding another G League team to uh, basically a league where it doesn't have necessarily a you know full-time regular season and playoff team so i don't know where they're going to pick the players from or how that works exactly but uh, nonetheless i think the optics uh, look great here and again the league continues to uh, do great things and uh, this is just the latest one in my opinion <clears throat> all right Let's get to the game of the week here. Um, my game of the week uh, was the Lakers versus the Heat on December 13th. Uh, the Lakers won that game 113-110. This was a playoff-like atmosphere. 
basically starred by LeBron James. 28 points, 9 rebounds, 12 assists. Did have 8 turnovers and some uncharacteristic turnovers in the first quarter, but still had a fantastic game initiating out of the post, running pick and roll, doing all the uh, traditional LeBron stuff. And Anthony Davis chipped in as well with 33 points, 10 rebounds, hit four threes as well. Um, So the Lakers have won 13 in a row on the road. They're currently playing the Atlanta Hawks as we speak, and they're up uh, 55-52 with 10-33 left in the third quarter. Got to believe they're going to win that game, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how things go. Nothing set in stone yet. It's a close game. Um, But 13 in a row on the road is incredibly impressive for this Lakers team. Very composed. Really shows you how they they are very focused uh, when they get into a new city. None of this messing around stuff. They're uh, really set and good to go. And uh, unfortunately for Miami, that snaps a 12-game home winning streak for them. Uh, But um, that's no shame in losing to the Lakers, which I believe are the best team in the NBA right now. And uh, the Miami Heat continue to play great basketball despite this loss, so I'm not really too worried about them whatsoever. Um, from a tactical standpoint, uh, it was a lot of LeBron initiating out of the post, you know, just uh, finding uh, guys, you know, cutting back door and miscommunication, open three, stuff like that. But what's crazy to me is that, like, the, the Lakers, they run real offense. Like, they run off-ball actions and offensive sets and all that stuff. And then when stuff breaks down, you know, like pin downs on this side of the floor, the team covers it up well. They're like, okay, let's just run the LeBron Anthony Davis pick and roll. And like, what a fallback option that is to have to run uh, pick and roll with like two of the top five players in the game right now. Uh, and it's really unfair, to be frank. Like, it is so unfair to have that as the fallback option when your option when your real offense bogs down. So. I mean, the Lakers are looking fantastic. Three losses all year uh, through 26 games. Uh, They have just been really great. None of this uh, chitter-chatter coming out of... of Lakers camp that everybody seems to be getting along very well. No internal dysfunction. Uh, This is a new Laker team. This is a new Laker team that we haven't seen in some time. And... Uh, or at least over the past you know five or six years uh, during the end of the Kobe years and then that first year with LeBron last year didn't necessarily go as planned but now things are looking up for the Lakers. They they've got a great defense. They've got two offensive guys that are really running it great. They've uh, they've picked some guys up that have really started to perform in their roles. Rondo's playing really well. Uh, they've got Avery Bradley playing well. Obviously Dwight Howard is playing his role, uh, and th- this is just you know fantastic stuff. And they're still missing Kyle Kuzma, who's uh, who's yet to come in uh, to his own. But once they get him back and going, that's just going to be another dimension for this team uh, if he can uh, at all pick it up during the year. So I mean the Lakers. Are looking pretty scary. Uh, I would be very frightened uh, if I were any team in the West to play the Los Angeles Lakers right now. They look locked in, they look focused, and they they look uh, damn near unbeatable. But uh, we'll see. There's obviously a regression coming here at some point. I mean, the Lakers are not uh, Iron Man or Superman. They're... Um, are they a super team? That's a question. Um, some will say yes, some will say no. I'm I'm still on the fence of whether or not I believe in that or not. But I um uh, I, I just like what they're doing right now. I really like what they're doing. I really like how they're playing on both ends. Uh, Frank Vogel seems to have them bought in the, on the defensive end, and LeBron seems to be you know captain being captain of an offense that's looking pretty good as well. So uh, no problems here with the Lakers, and they continue to roll and do real well in the Western Conference. So we'll see uh, how they play out for the rest of the season. Okay. What I learned this week. Now, I didn't necessarily learn this this week. I've known this for a long time. But I think this is actually really important to get out and really educate people about. And it's the problem with traditional counting stats. Like, I don't, I don't even know where to start here. Okay, 
let's 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 start at you know points, assists, rebounds, field goal percentage, um, you know three point percentage, all of that stuff, right? All of that stuff contributes to traditional counting stats, in my opinion. And there's a big problem with many of those stats. Let's let's start with points, okay? People will go and say, oh, player X is averaging 25 points per game, right? And player Y is averaging 21 points per game. So therefore, player X must be a better scorer than player Y because he averages more points per game. There's so many things wrong with that analogy, but yet that seems to be the route people take uh, well, at least more casual fans will take when discussing, you know, players at the bar table or, you know what I mean, just casually, uh, you know, discussing the league. Here's the problem with that. It misses a bunch of context, okay? The first piece of context is how are you scoring your points? Are you just getting, are you just, you know, the recipient of lob passes and they're just dunking every time? Or are you tasked with creating all of the offense off the dribble when things bog down late in the shot clock and the, and the team throws it to you and asks you to get a bucket. Like, those are two different types of scorers. And now, let's say the 25 per point per game guy is just a guy that finishes around, and I'm not saying anybody specific in the NBA here. This is just literally player X and player Y. But let's say the 25 point per game scorer is just scoring in the paint and around the rim, you know, and he's so, and he's dominant, right? He's, he's very dominant and, but he can only score, you know, inside of 15 feet and uh, can only score when someone passes him the ball because he doesn't have the ability to create his own offense. Well, yeah, you're scoring 25 points per game, but your the versatility and the way that you're getting those 25 points is not necessarily conducive to being an elite scorer. Whereas maybe the guy that's scoring 21 points per game is being asked to run pick and roll, is shooting jump shots, is being able to create off the dribble in isolation, can go to the basket, finish at the rim, uh, taking you know three pointers, all that sort of stuff. So that 21 point per game scorer is asked to score his points in so many different ways that it is a lot you know more versatile in the way that that 21 point per game score scores the ball so without even looking at anything if those are the two choices i have the 25 point per game score that just scores around the rim and the like and is a dependent scorer whereas the 21 point per game guy uh is creating his own offense well the 21 point per game guy is better is a better scorer and offensive player well, I don't want to say offensive player because that includes passing and all that sort of stuff. But he's a better scorer than the 25-point-per-game player, right? So that's that's just basic. And then the second way we think about is how many shots are you taking to get your points? If the guy that's you know scoring 25 points per game is taking 24 shots to get his 25 points, well, that's a lot of damn shots. That's a lot of shots that you're taking. That's 24 offensive possessions a game that end with you taking a shot and only getting your team 25 points. Whereas maybe the guy that's scoring 21 points per game because he shoots threes and all that is only taking, you know, 16 shots per game and getting to the free throw line and shooting from downtown and all this sort of stuff. So now the guy scoring 21 points per game is doing it on, you know, eight less shots than the guy scoring 25 points per game. So what if that guy scoring 21 points per game taking, you know, 16 shots was able to take 24 shots per game? How many points would he score then? So now you so you start to see the context of the points per game stuff, you know, is great, but we need to accompany that with how are you scoring your points 
and how many shots are you taking per game? And the third one is how efficiently are you scoring your points? If this 25-point-per-game score is scoring them at 30% and the 21-point-per-game score is scoring it at 50%, well, then that's another conversation, right? It's taking this guy way more shots, and he's using possessions way less efficiently than this guy over here that's, uh, you know, being able to shoot at a much better clip. He's just not shooting as much as the other guy and not... Um, not getting the same opportunity to create and to score uh, with the uh, with the low amount of shots, despite his efficiency. Uh, if you're the 21 point per game score, so for points, you have to understand it's it's not only just who scores the most points. It's how do you score your points, how many shots are you getting, and how efficiently are you using those shots. Those three things accumulate into points, and so don't be fooled by the points per game number because that does not tell you anywhere near the story it needs to. All right, let's go to assists. Okay, assists are assist, the people use this one way more to classify who's a better passer just based on their overall assist numbers. Okay, so here's my here's the thing with assists. Not all assists are created equal. Okay, an assist basically is once the player passes the ball, they get two dribbles. Uh, before a shot can go up and it counts as an assist. If they take three dribbles, it does not count as an assist. That's that's the way it works in the NBA. So how are you getting those assists? Like, are you just kicking the ball out to three-point shooters and letting them do all the work? Like, just taking two dribbles and, you know, letting them shoot? Uh, are they doing all the work? Or are you just passing it into a big dominant post player in the post and letting him take two dribbles to get to the rim because he's so dominant? Like, yes, those are assists, but how valuable are those assists? How, how you know, is there a replacement player that can do the same thing as that person uh, as long as they have the same resources to pass to? That's a real question. Or is your assist guy, you know, running pick and roll and, you know, creating opportunities and getting, uh, getting your guys layups, open layups and open dunks, or, you know, uh, using his eyes to manipulate the defense and passing out and creating open threes, passing guys open, as we call it in the league. So again, it's, it's about versatility. It's about the way that you're getting your teammates, the ball. If you're just if if you're just you know making simple passes and relying on your teammates to do the rest of the work, well, yes, you're still getting an assist, but that's not necessarily as valuable as the player that's creating the openings for teammates and allowing them to get easier buckets, more open shots, that sort of thing. And then we get into not just you know the way you're creating assists, but the timing and accuracy on your assists. Are your assists coming from guys, you know, doing all the work because, you know, they're catching the balls at their ankles or the pass is late and they're, you know, just having to, you know, put it up uh, with, a, with a hand and contest in their face? Or are they receiving the ball on time, on, on target, in the shooting pocket and make their and make their percentages go up much better because you're able to find them at the correct time and find the correct player. Like that's another part of these assists is are you good enough at identifying the strengths and weaknesses of your own team to realize what positions can I put my teammates in to be most successful? For example, you're not going to throw, you know, Rudy Gobert a bounce pass at his at his knees 
he's going to have to catch that, take a dribble, corral himself, and then go up. You want to throw him the lob, right? You want to throw him the lob. That's that's where he's going to excel the most. Whereas a guy like, you know, Jonas Valanciunas, he might need a bounce pass where he where he catches it, you know, kind of on the hip pocket and goes up and gets a layup because he doesn't necessarily have the lift to be a lob catcher. So, you know, it's little things like that that you have to understand. The best passers in the game understand those differences and are able to put their teammates in a position to be successful. So for assists, not all assists are created equal. Um, are How are you getting those assists? Are you creating the openings for your teammates to score? Or are you just kind of facilitating the offense and putting another player in your place would, would you know, um, produce similar numbers from an assist perspective? Um, so that's those are things you have to think about with assists. Okay, rebounds. Again, re- rebounds. Are you just collecting defensive rebounds that just come off the rim, and that's the st- and that's like the your team strategy is to allow you to correct co- like collect the rebound, box everybody out. You get the rebound and you you push, and that's why you get you know uh, eight nine defensive rebounds a game. Or are you mixing it up in the paint and going over and getting those contested rebounds over the big guys, creating new opportunities, or boxing out some big-time offensive rebounders to be able to finish possessions defensively and make sure that your team uh, doesn't allow second and third shot opportunities to the opponent because you're unable to corral the rebounds? So you're starting to see here that you know not all rebounds, just like points and assists, excuse me, are created equal. You have to understand that, you know, these, you know, these rebounds, uh, some of them just fall right into your lap. Some of them you have to go and get uh, over some big time players. So again, I think, I think you guys get the point on that one. Very easy to understand that, um, you know, rebounds are not all created equal as well. All right, last two, field goal percentage. Field goal percentage is becoming one of my least favorite stats uh, these days because, again, it doesn't even come close to telling the whole story. And here's here's the best example of field goal percentage that uh, that gets me upset and that is why I don't like it as a stat. That's why I reference true shooting so much because true shooting is a combination of your field goal percentage, your three-point percentage, and your free throw percentage. The field goal, three-point, and free throw that allow that brings it into one number that better encapsulates how you shoot the basketball. Okay, but field goal percentage, right? Okay, well, let's say, you know, it's end of the quarter, uh, countdown three, two, one, and the player launches from, you know, over half court, right? He launches from over half court and he doesn't even come close to getting, uh, you know, getting, uh, hitting the shot, right? Like he's, he's launched from half court. Not many guys make that shot very often. So that goes down in the books as a field goal attempt. That's a missed shot, right? But that missed shot basically equals a missed layup at the rim. So if you miss a a full court heave or you miss a wide open layup at the rim, those two look the exact same in the in the box score, which which is upsetting because a missed layup is a direct uh you know is is a direct minus of 2 points from your team because you missed a layup. That should be 2 points. Whereas the full court heave, you could choose not to take that shot, but you're not creating an opportunity for your team. Just by taking that shot, it's a good play because 
you're getting an extra shot for your team. Like, just shoot your shot, right? Like, that, that concept. We've heard that concept all the time. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Well, if you're taking that shot, that's added value for your team just by taking the shot. But the box score and their field goal percentage wouldn't suggest that it is because it looks at it as, oh, you missed a shot. But it's actually creating value because you're giving your team more shots and more opportunities to score. So you see, you see the difference there. Like you're taking a full court heave, and it looks the same as a, a wide open breakaway miss layup at the rim. The miss layup directly costs your team two points, and the the full court heave uh, allows your team to get possibly three points if the ball goes in. But if you don't take it at all, it's a missed opportunity. So those two shots are seen as equal in the field goal percentage category, but produce very, very different outcomes uh, in real life. So that's why, you know, three-point percentage and, you know, free throw percentage added into field goal percentage to create true shooting are a much better encapsulator of your shooting percentage and your shooting efficiency, uh, which is just it's just a lot better for me. So, again, field goal percentage, yeah, you can look at it. That's fine. Like, there, there, are, there are some times when maybe that's you know, a good indicator. Like if you're shooting a super high field goal percentage, yeah, that's probably a good indicator. But just because you're shooting a very low field goal percentage doesn't necessarily mean you're a poor shooter or not shooting with great efficiency. You've got to dive a little bit deeper into the nature of those shots and the nature of the attempts that you're taking. Okay, here we go. Finally, three-point percentage. Three-point percentage, you know, this, you know, three-point percentage is, is fairly accurate. Um, it's not bad, but again, we're missing the versatility aspect. Are you just a standstill catch and shoot guy that can only shoot the three pointer if your toes are like, you know, two inches behind the line and you can, and you can't take a dribble. You can only catch and shoot it, but you're shooting, you know, 37%, you know, on the year. Well, that's great. But for me, I'm much more interested in the guy that's shooting 34% uh, when he's shooting, you know, off the dribble, step backs, can shoot it from 30 feet, all this sort of stuff. The guy that's able to shoot from 30 and the guy that's able to shoot from, you know, 23-10, you know, the, the three-point line is 23 feet, 9 inches. The guy that's shooting from 23-10 at 37%, I'm much more interested at the guy that's able to knock him down at 34%, but he can shoot from 30 feet. Like that is much more appealing to me because you're stretching out the defense more. They've got to guard you out there. You can start your pick and rolls higher if that player is able to do pick and roll, which creates more space, more gaps in the defense. There's a lot more context that goes into three-point shooting here. The other thing, are you shooting just off catch and shoot or are you creating and shooting them off the dribble? That is another, you know, big aspect to this. Are you able to shoot off of pin downs going full speed? Are you able to, um, you know, pull up in transition? Are you able to, there's a whole bunch of things that go into three-point shooting. Um, but if you're only just a standstill catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, you but you shoot it at a high clip, I'm much more willing to sacrifice a few more percentage points uh, for the added versatility of being able to shoot off of pin downs, shoot off of the dribble, using step backs, shooting further out from the line. All of those things encap encapsulates good three-point shooters and why that three-point shooting percentage can be very deceiving if you're not taking into account the context in which those shots are going up. And the final thing I'll say about three-point per, uh, percentage and why it's a bit of a misleading stat is it doesn't take into account the number of shots attempted. 
If you're shooting 33% from three, but you're shooting nine attempts a game, that's way better than me than a guy shooting 38% from three, only taking three attempts per game. Because you're much more dangerous. You're creating much more, many more points, and you're creating a lot more gravity, which we talked about on past podcasts, and the, and the value of volume three-point shooters. You're creating a lot more value for your team by taking a lot of threes, uh, but only sacrificing a few percentage of points, as opposed to not taking many at all, but shooting it at a very high clip. So I heard this, sort of, this is a perfect example, okay? I'll ha- I have to uh, use this example because it's perfect. So Doncic is shooting like 32% from three, right? But how is Doncic taking his attempts? First of all, he's taking like 10 a game. He's taking them off the dribble. He's taking them, you know, step backs, you know, pin downs against the best defenders. That's another thing. Who's guarding you on these three-point shots? That's another aspect to this, right? So Doncic shooting 32%, but shooting like 10 a game with the utmost versatility you can ask for, okay? Rajon Rondo, you know, before tonight's game uh, against... um, uh, against Atlanta that I referenced early is shooting 52% from downtown, right? Problem is, is he's not taking him off the dribble. He's not running off pin downs. He's just a standstill catch and shoot to a shooter. And he's taking three, not even three, three point attempts per game. So he's shooting 52%, but he's taking three, three point attempts per game. And is a standstill shooter. Who would you rather have Doncic at 32% shooting 10 a game or Rajon Rondo at 52% but only shooting three a game with no versatility. So, again, take that into account when you're talking about three-point shooters. They're not all created equal. That one percentage number does not take into account the context in which those three-point shots are going up. All right, that was a long one. That, that was a long one, but that was necessary, okay? That was very necessary. And if you listen to this podcast, you know, whether it be my friends or anything, I want you to message me about this concept and whether or not you knew about it uh, because I think that this is something that goes way over people's heads and people really never seem to understand if they're, you know, you know, house of highlight kings or don't watch games or just use the traditional box score stats to try and, you know, uh, make their arguments. Please tell me if if you agree with me or if you did not, you know, understand that concept before. I know a lot of people obviously do. There's a lot of, you know, hardcore fans that watch the game that obviously understand that, you know, 15-minute rant I just went on. There's a lot of people who don't. And I think it's important to educate those people who don't on what I just talked about because it's going to make you uh, someone who knows all, makes it seem at least that you know a lot more about basketball Um, because I'll be damned if you're going to go up to somebody and say Rondo is a better three-point shooter than Luka Doncic because he shoots 52% and and Doncic shoots is like 33. Like, you're going to look very silly at a bar trying to make that argument. So, you know, all all these things that I just talked about really kind of encapsulate um, the idea that watching games... Uh, and understanding what's going on on the court and you know how players operate is huge to be able to understand the sport and uh, forming opinions on how teams should change and what they need and what they need to get rid of etc so thanks so much for listening i hope you enjoyed uh, specifically that last point on the counting stats that was a lot of fun to go through because it really something that's been kind of irking at me for a while uh, again, I mentioned I'm going on vacation, so I won't have a podcast for the next couple of weeks. I'll try to keep up with games as much as I can, but no promises. I'll, I'll definitely catch up when I get back. We'll maybe go through some of the all-star ballots and stuff like that because by the time I get back, that will be uh, uh, you know kind of up and running. So we'll go through some of that. But thanks for listening. You know, Isoball Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, 
go uh, go search it up, ISO Ball Pod or ISO Ball Podcast. Uh, you know, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, go rate, review five stars, uh, tell friends about it, all that good stuff that really helps me grow uh, the community as I'm kind of starting from scratch here as a guy that has no connects in the industry. So if you uh, can do me a favor and help me out, I would more than love that. But uh, thanks again so much for listening, and uh, we will be back in a couple weeks with some more content. Have a Merry Christmas, enjoy the Christmas games, and have a Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2020.